If you know me, you know that I have a lifelong obsession with books. I love books. I love all sorts of books. Obviously, I grew up, you know, reading children's books and, and all kinds of books at the public library and the school library and, you know, graduated to more, um, I would say, more difficult books over time. And then along the way came digital books. I thought, well, let's get some of those. Um, in the last few years, I've been listening to a lot of audio books. And so I love books of every variety. But of course, my favorite book of all time is, of course, the Bible. Now, that's not something just to say because I'm a pastor, but I, this is my favorite book because I've never found a book that's more interesting, that's more helpful, that's more life-changing than this book. This is the book by which all others are judged. And so the Bible is sometimes referred to as the book of the word. And it's the book that gives us the word of God. It's what's called God's special revelation. But it's interesting to note that when it comes to Christianity, there's also a second book that is much more widely read than the Bible. And this second book is actually referred to in the scriptures, and that's what we might call the book of the world. God's general revelation. And so it's these two books that I want to focus on and that what David talks about here in Psalm 19. The book of the word we'll see in the second half of our study, which is God's word, the special revelation through the Bible. And then we also have the book of the world, which is nature and how God reveals himself through the created world, through the universe. So it's these two books we'll be looking at this morning here in Psalm 19. So let me go ahead and read through this chapter and then we'll make our way through it. We read Psalm 19 to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than fine gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Okay, so we're going to look at two sections today. We're going to look, first of all, at the book of the world in verses 1 through 6, and then we'll look at the book of the word in verses 7 through 14. So let's jump into verse 1 here. We read, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. So it's interesting what David is doing here and, and how he's bringing things out. He's beginning with this book of the world. He's beginning with the created order. And it begins with these words, the heavens. Now, the heavens, in, in opposition or, or I would say in complementation to the firmament, the heavens speak of the sky during the day. So when you see this first part, it really speaks of the sky during the day. So you kind of think about what it looks like, you know, the blue sky with the white clouds and the yellow sun. You think about the colorful sunrises and sunsets that we experience here in West Texas. There's not a whole lot to love about the, the geography of West Texas, but we do have beautiful sunrises and sunsets. And on a clear day, it can be gorgeous. And maybe if you've traveled widely, you've gone to some different places where they might call themselves big sky country, where you go somewhere and it just seems like the sky extends forever. And so that's what's being talked about here. Now, what do these heavens do? What is this, this blue sky and the white clouds and the yellow sun and sunrises and sunsets? What do they do? They declare the glory of God. Now, that word declare is very interesting in the Hebrew. It was used to signify the numbering or counting of objects. It was an accounting term. So think about it for just a minute. What David is saying, he's saying that nature builds a case for a creator. 
Nature builds a case for a creator. And so what happens is when you look up at the sky during the day and the many varieties of what you see in a sky look like, it's actually stacking up evidence for God as creator. It's just like if, if you were to sit on a jury and then here comes the prosecuting attorney and there's a piece of evidence, another piece of evidence, another piece. And, and by the time he gets to evidence piece X, you're like, I'm convinced this person did it. So that's what we see in the created order. There's evidence after evidence after evidence that God is a creator. Now, what's interesting as we look at this, the world that we live in, this, the secular societies, the ungodly society, um, you know, rulers of this world, what do they do? They try to convince us that there is no God. It's all an accident. It's all an accident. God didn't create it. And there's a very interesting book I would encourage you to read by Henry Morris. It's called The Long War Against God. And it talks about this systematic, you know, going against God all throughout human history. There is no God. But then all you have to do to counteract that is just go outside. Just go outside, look around. You know, even here in Midland, Texas, you can find trees. You can find grass sometimes. You can find these sort of things and begin to look, begin to observe, and you'll see that it declares that it stacks up evidence for God as creator. Now, not only God as creator, but it actually speaks of the glory of God. Notice, the heavens declare, give evidence to the glory of God. That word glory there, it means wealth or honor or majesty. Wealth or honor or majesty. And so the day sky makes a compelling case for the majesty of the God who created it. You know, we, we may or may not get up in time to see the sunrise. But if you do, you begin to see that. And there's this, it's interesting, there's this brief window where you can kind of really see the beauty of it. The oranges and the pinks with the different colors. And, and it's kind of this 15-minute window usually that if you miss it, it kind of fades. But during that time, you can see God's glory. And the most of us are, you know, there awake for the, the sunsets. And there's this time as the sun is setting to, to see that glory. And it, you look at that and it reveals the wealth, the honor, the majesty of God. Now, so David talks about the day. And then now as we move on in verse one, he's going to talk about the night. He says, the firmament shows his handiwork. This firmament here really speaks of the night sky. All that you see in the night sky. You see the moon, you see the stars, you see the planets. We, you know, we have things like the Hubble telescope that shows us these amazing things out from in space. And so then this word, the, the night sky there, the firmament is the night sky. But it, notice what it does is it shows his handiwork. That shows means makes known or another way of translating it is to herald. You see, a herald was a person who went into a town, spent on a mission by a ruling authority to give a message. And so what God has done is he's created the night sky to herald who he is, to herald the fact that he is this creator, that he is this maker of heaven and earth. You know, and this is a thing that happens to us, though. You know, things become common with much handling because we've seen day after day, after day, then we're like, yeah, whatever. It's hot outside. Let me go inside. Let me, instead of looking at the sky and appreciating its beauty, let me see what's streaming on my whatever. Same thing for the night. Because we see the night, night after night after night, yeah, whatever. I've seen this before. And so it's, it's important for us to kind of move from kind of this jaundiced attitude we have to actually see the day with different eyes. To realize, okay, the day is, is having evidence, giving me evidence of God as creator. The night is showing me, what is it showing me? What does it herald me? Notice his handiwork. The firmament shows his handiwork. The handiwork means the work of his hands. <laughs> it's the work of his hands. It, it's, it's his labor. It's his deed. It actually could also be used to like when a, a woman who is a working and sewing something. That's what it's talking about. The, the, the night sky, as we think about, you know, stars and the planets and all that, it, it shows his handiwork. And I love that. I can't remember the exact verse. I think it may be Genesis 1 verse 16. I'm not sure exactly. But it, there's this kind of almost throwaway verse about God making the stars. And it's interesting, you think about how many stars there are, and there are these more stars that we can count, and then it says in Genesis chapter 1, and he made the stars also. <laughs> I love that. There's no big deal. You see those stars, there's, you know, however many of them, he made those also. It's no big deal for him. Now, 
I was confronted with kind of the night sky in a special way. I, I grew up as an unbeliever, uh, became a believer late in college. And then uh, they had this bright idea at this camp where I worked in Marble Falls that what if, even though these kids are living in these cabins for three weeks, what if we left the cabins and actually spent the night on these raised wooden platforms out in the fields? I was like, well, yeah, I haven't been getting good sleep for the last three weeks. Why not make it worse? You know, and so we went to these wooden platforms and we put our, our you know, sleeping bags on them and we slept. And, and as you could imagine, I couldn't sleep very well during the night. I kept waking up. But the Lord did something without waking up because as I woke up, it was there near Lake LBJ. So not a lot of light pollution. And so I would look up and I would see the stars. And I would see the moon and I would see clouds passing by. And it was amazing. That's why I'd fall asleep for another couple of hours and the sky would have changed because of, you know, the, earth, the rotation of the earth and all that. So that night is cemented into my mind as seeing the handiwork of God, uh, just seeing his glory. It was, a, it was a wonderful time. So for us, as we go out today, let's look up at the heavens, not directly into the sun, please. Uh, but let's look up. And realize that it's giving evidence for God's glory, his majesty. Let's look at the night sky and see that it's showing his handiwork. Verse 2, we're told, day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. So again, we see the same type of thing where we have the day and then we have the night. So day unto day, um, what what that phrase day unto day means, it means every day. So God is speaking through the book of the world every day, every single day. He doesn't take a day off. Every single day, God is speaking through the the created order. And every day, what does it do? It utters speech. So this utter speech, we look at that and it doesn't really captivate us. Okay, utter speech. But in the Hebrew, it is very, very strong. This phrase utters in the Hebrew, it means to flow or pour out or gush forth. It means to really just come flying out. And then the word speech means utterance or word or saying. So one commentator translated verse two in this way. He says that this utter speech is a gushing spring pouring forth sweet, refreshing waters of revelation. Like that. And you've probably experienced this in one way or another. You've probably been away from your electronics and all these things, and you've just been out in nature, and you've been overwhelmed by the the revelation that God gives through his world. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people who mistake the, the creation for the creator, they don't know why they're so drawn to nature. But I believe they're so drawn, even though they may not realize it, is because nature reveals the beauty of God through it his majesty, his invisible attributes. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later. Then continuing on, it says, and night unto night. This night unto night speaks of every night. So every single night, God is revealing himself through the book of the world. Now that word reveals, I love it. It means announces, tells, explains, displays. Announces, tells, explains, displays, and what is and the knowledge. That word knowledge means learning, discernment, or insight. So, every night that we go outside and look at the night sky, God's revealing things to us. He's announcing things to us. He's telling us these things. So I believe that God is always speaking, both through the word and through the world. The question for you and I is: Are we listening? Because you and I know it's possible, especially us guys, it's absolutely possible for someone to be speaking to us and us not hear it at all. There's going to be a game on, if you've heard this afternoon, there's going to be some guys watching it, probably some wives and girlfriends talking to those guys watching it. The guys will have no recollection of that. (laughs) They will have no understanding that they're being spoken to. Same thing for us and God through the world. Day unto day, night unto night, God is speaking to us, but are we willing to listen? And so uh, the beauty of the night sky, the vastness of the universe, what what is God doing with this? Because this is one of the questions that's often asked, and I've addressed it from the pulpit, but I want to address it again. People ask, why is the universe so big? Why is the universe so big? And, And they really talk about it from a kind of an atheistic idea of, well, we can't be important, 
because we're just these little people on this little dirt clod in the kind of the corner of the universe and look how big it is and it must all be by mistake. But here's the question that I always ask people. If you were the greatest artist who ever lived, would you draw stick figures? If you were the greatest composer who ever lived, would you come up with Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? The fact of the matter is if you are a great artist and God is the greatest artist, he's an infinite artist, would we not expect him to make the most majestic thing possible? So the universe displays God's glory. What God is doing, why he made it so vast, so limitless, is because he wants to show what he's like, who he is. He's an infinite God. And so he makes a universe that reveals his wonder, his beauty, his majesty. So instead of this vast universe being a support for atheism, it's actually the opposite. It's a support for this transcendent God, a God who is so large, he can make a universe this big with his hands. The span of his hand, he creates this universe. So I'd encourage you to, to think about that. Think about that truth the next time someone says to you, well, well, you're just insignificant because you're just this little person on this little planet. No, it's not about us being little people on a little planet. It's about us being a servant of a great, great God who's able to make something so vast. Verse three says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. So the book of the world is written in a universal language. You know, that there's, there's different languages spoken even in this fellowship. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different languages spoken in Midland, Texas. And then you kind of go out further and further. There's so many languages on planet Earth, different dialects and different things. And so it's very easy to misinterpret. It's a very easy to not understand one another. But what God is saying in his word and in the book of the world is that it's impossible to misunderstand the, the book of the world, that people have to willingly misinterpret what is being said. And we know that this happens all the time because you and I do this. Someone says something, we don't like what they say, so we purposely misinterpret it. We purposely put a different spin on it. We take them out of context so that it fits with our narrative. But what David is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he says, the, the day and the night, the created universe, it speaks in a language everybody understands. Everybody knows that there is a creator through it. Everyone who is, will, who is willing is able to understand it. Anyone on planet Earth who wants to know God can know God through creation. And if they respond to that light of creation, then God will give them more light and special revelation. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 4 says their line has gone out throughout through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That word line is interesting. It really speaks of a measuring line. You know, back in the day, they didn't have the measuring tapes like we have. And so they would use these lines as, as, as kind of their measuring tape. And so it's this idea that this measuring line that's used in construction, it's telling us that it's clear that the universe was created. You know, it's, um, there's, they're doing construction. They're building a, a, new, a new wing at the school where I teach. And all the signs are evident that construction has taken place. <laughs> you know, there's been enough guys there. So there's like empty bottles lying around of, you know, their, their sodas and stuff like that. And there's kind of the remnants of things. And there's, there's tire tracks. And there's, so, so I don't have to actually see the workers there to know that they've been there. There's been evidence left by those workers. So that's what David is saying here. It's like God has left his measuring tape out. You can clearly see that there's a creator. You can't get around the fact that this is such an orderly universe and say, well, it just must have happened just so. It must have been just an accident. No, no, no. He's saying God left his measuring tape out. You know that he created it. You know that there is a transcendent creator. And so I love this here where it says, and their words to the end of the world. The message of the creator proclaimed through creation is literally everywhere. Literally everywhere. Even if you go inside of a room like this room and you say, well, I don't see nature here. Well, you see people who are made in God's image. 
You, you see an orderly room, you see construction, you say, hmm, there was a designer here. If they're able to design, that leads me to believe there's a designer behind them. If they're creative, it leads me to be- believe that there's that creation or that desire for creation came from somewhere. So everywhere you go reveals the God that is the creator. Now, for, for more on this t- topic, more on this truth, would you turn in your New Testaments to Romans chapter one for just a moment? I want to look at Romans 1, because Romans 1 is, is kind of the Psalm 19 of the New Testament, if you will. Or at least this one section here. What Paul's doing here in this section of Romans 1 is he's showing the book of the world. That through the book of the world, everybody knows there is a creator. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men, notice, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so in other words, God is is justly wrathful against this ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because what are they doing? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth, but they're pushing the truth down. Now, I came to know the Lord, as I said earlier, late in college, But here's the fact of the matter. I always knew God existed. I really did. Somewhere deep down, I I really did. But I just didn't want to do, I don't want to do anything about it. Didn't want to serve him. Didn't want to obey him. Want to do my own thing. I was suppressing the truth and righteousness. And here's, notice, continue verse 19. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Or another way of translating that is evident among them. For God has shown it to them. How? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, I love this, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." Change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. There, and, and God gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor themselves, their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so Paul's saying that, and I love that phrase, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through creation. Why, why do people say they don't see it? Because they suppress the truth and righteousness. Because it costs too much. Because if there's a God who created everything, he created you. And if he created you, you're responsible to him. You're owned by him. He, he can do what he wants in your life. And so because of that, man doesn't want that. And so it's interesting, and why I stopped at verse 25, and you can obviously read more on your own later, but is this idea of serving the creature rather than the creator? Those are the only two choices. Those are the only two choices. As Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. You can either serve the creator or the creature. That's the only two choices. And even for us as believers, that's the moment-by-moment choice for you and I. Am I going to serve my creator or am I going to serve the creature? When you and I get bent out of shape about a situation, we're serving the creature rather than the creator. Because we're saying, my will isn't, be done, isn't being done here on earth and I'm angry about it. I want my will done. When the team that we're going for today doesn't win, I can't believe this. How come my will's not being done? And, and so this, this is the truth. But if you and I can look around at creation, the book of the world, and say, I didn't make this place. I didn't make this world. This isn't my world. So I'm going to serve the creator rather than the creature. And when I do that, then what's going to happen is I'm going to start walking in truth. I'm going to see God clearly, and it's going to be wonderful. So please, please understand that when a person says to you, I don't see any evidence of God. I don't believe that God can exist. What they're doing, they're admitting to you that they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that that they're pushing it down. And so you and I can start with the book of the world. We can talk about creation and we can talk about order and all these kind of things. But please understand that if a person doesn't want to hear the truth, they're not going to hear the truth. They're going to keep suppressing that truth and unrighteousness. But for you and I, let's not suppress the truth. Let's look around this world. 
Let's see God speak to us. Let's listen to him through the book of the worlds. All right, let's turn back now to Psalm 19, continuing on there in verse 4. Second part of verse four there is a little little space in my Bible. It says, in them, he has set a tabernacle for the son, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So just David picks one, you know, central object to focus on in creation. He talks about the sun. And the sun's familiar to all of us. The sun is incredibly important to life on planet Earth. And so the sun is being talked about here kind of from an observational point of view. So it's kind of this wonderful picture of in the morning, you know, when the sun rises, it's kind of like the, the sun coming out of its tabernacle, you know, coming out into, I would say coming out into the light of day, but it is pre- producing the light of the day. And it's kind of running across the, um, you know, like a, like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber in his glory. It's running this strong race. So it's just a wonderful picture of the sun traveling through the sky. Now, again, David is not seeking to bring, you know, this in, in kind of scientific language. This is an observational point of view. He's saying this is what it looks like. But what it's doing is the way the sun travels, the way the sun travels day after day after day after day gives credit to the majesty of God, to the glory of God, to the orderliness of God. You know, as, as little orphan Annie said, the sun will come up tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there will be sun. All right, let's move on now. To our second section, we move from the book of the world to the book of the word here in verses 7 through 14. And there's something to notice here. Something really important is that whenever David spoke of God in this first section with the book of the world, he just used God, which is a very general term for God, almost a generic term for God with L. It's L in the Hebrew, and it really speaks of the transcendent God. So when God reveals himself through creation... The book of the world, we know that there is a God that's majestic and, and, and powerful, but we don't know what he's like exactly. We just know that he's big and powerful. We don't know about his character. And so that's where everything shifts with the special revelation of the book of the word. So verse seven, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. So again, we have the shift from God as the Hebrew L to now to the Lord, L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So we move from transcendent deity to now personal relationship God. So that's a very important thing. When you see God before being a believer and kind of just see creation, you're just kind of seeing kind of God in general. I know there's a creator, but now you get to know the specific God that he is. You begin to know him personally. And so the lesson here is that the book of the world, general revelation only takes you so far. General revelation only takes you so far. It tells you that God is great, but the book of the word, special revelation tells you that God is good. Book of the world, God is great. Book of the word, God is good. And that's really, really important because some people say, well, I just worship God by going on a hike. And I worship God. As, well, what is this God like? Well, he's a God who made everything. Okay, but what else? Well, he just kind of made everything and he kind of just lets me do whatever I want and he's cool with it. Well, that's not the true God. So it's important for us to, yes, to see God through the book of the world, But we also, and more importantly, need to see God through the book of the word because it's actually the book of the word that reveals to us about God as the book of the world. Now, notice the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. That word perfect there, it means perfectly complete or completely perfect. So so God's word is perfect. I love how Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the word of God gives us what we need. Now, You say, well, you said, Steve, you know, the Bible's all that I need. So how dare you read other books? 
How dare you listen to other books? How you do all those things? Uh, I've learned a lot from these other books, a lot of illustrations and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that it's supplanting the word of God, right? But God has created me with such a, a desire for kind of learning new things that those other books kind of help give me color and help me to understand even the word of God better. Now, continuing on, it says that the word of God is perfect, converting the soul. I love this phrase here, converting the soul, um, because we could use that and say, well, converts the soul like salvation. And, and that's absolutely true, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But this word converting in the Hebrew, it actually could be translated restoring. So this is an often overlooked fact of the word of God, that the word of God restores the soul. It brings back the soul. It, it revives one's personal vitality. See, one of the lies of Satan is this. Satan says, you've got to read your Bible and you're going to hate it. You've got to read your Bible and it's work. You've got to read your Bible and you've got to check that box off the list for today. But what the word of God actually does for us, if we come to it with a right heart, it revives us. It restores us. It refreshes us. It, 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 it washes away the muck and the mire of this world, those things that blind us, those things that confuse us. It gives us clarity. That's what the word of God does. So look at the word of God to do that for you. Look at the word of God to convert your soul by what I mean is restoring your soul, bringing back your life, reviving you, not as a have to, but as a get to, as a want to when you come to God's word. And so I'd encourage you, read the word of God for personal refreshment. I don't know how many countless hours I've sought to be refreshed by television. <laughs> Hasn't worked. <laughs> it's not refreshing. At the end, I either have fallen asleep or just said, that's a waste of time. So for you and I, if we want to be refreshed, we want to see things clearly, come back to the word of God. I love how Jeremiah put it in Jeremiah 15, 16. And if you're not familiar with Jeremiah's ministry, it was a rough one. You don't want it. You don't want a Jeremiah ministry. This is what he said. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah needed a lot of joy and rejoicing. Jeremiah was a guy called by God to go out and, and, and share the message that if the people didn't repent, they're gonna fall to the Babylonians. And God told him, Jeremiah, by the way, nobody's gonna listen to you. So go ahead and go preach for 40 years. No one's going to pay attention. And he did that. And then if you can read his book of Lamentations as well, where he laments the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of that city that he loved. And so, so Jeremiah was a man who needed refreshment. He needed to be just encouraged. So where did he go? He went to the word of God. So you and I, no matter what we're going through, no matter what our life looks like, come back to the word of God for that restoration of soul. Continuing on, we read here that the testimony of the Lord is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That testimony, I love this, it means the Lord's testimony of himself. The Lord's testimony of himself. On Monday, we were going through the book of Acts with our men's discipleship, and we talked about how, you know, Peter had, there's three times in the book of Acts where Peter um, when he went to go Cornelius' house and kind of all that went down there and sharing with the Gentiles. And it's interesting that it's like just over and over again. Like, what's the Lord doing? Why, why is this repeated three times in the book of Acts? And you kind of think about that. And you think about Paul's testimony about the road to Damascus and how he would share that over and over again. And maybe you shared your testimony over and over again and you shared with others what God's doing in your life. Well, what about God's testimony of himself? What about just reading, what, what does God say about who he is? What has God revealed about his own character and his own nature? And so that's a wonderful thing that we can come to God's word. And guess what? God shares his testimony of who he is. And we get to listen to that. And what are we told about that testimony? That it's sure. That word sure means reliable, trustworthy, certain. God reveals himself. He tells us who he is. He testifies of himself and you can trust it. You can trust that he is who he says he is. It's a, it's a wonderful thing because you and I, let's be honest, you and I, as, though we're believers, we can kind of exaggerate things, can shade the truth a little bit. We're not perfectly honest with one another. God's perfectly honest with us. His testimony is sure. We can know exactly who he is, exactly what he is like. Now, continuing on, it says that also the word of God, 
the book of the word, what does it do? It makes wise the simple. I love that. That word simple, it could be translated teachable. He makes wise the teachable. I, I've tried to teach a lot of people in my day. And oftentimes it's, it's my own lack of teaching ability that hasn't gotten through to people. But oftentimes too, it's a student's just not teachable. Just doesn't want to learn. Just, just hard-headed, doesn't want to learn. So if you and I aren't growing in the word of God, there's only one person to blame, that person in the mirror. If you and I aren't learning through the word of God, we are the problem. Because God wants to teach us. He wants to make us wise, but we have to be teachable. And I love this too. It tells us you don't need a formal education to be wise. You don't need to spend tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars so someone can give you letters to put after your name. You want to be wise? Come to the word of God. The word of God can do it for you. The word of God can make you wise if you're teachable, if I'm teachable. Verse eight says the statutes of the Lord are right. The statutes of the Lord are right. In other words, what God says is right. That word right means straight or smooth or upright. It's this idea of the right way to go. You know, I don't know if you've ever been out hiking and then there's kind of two paths and you're like, I'm not sure which is the continuation of the correct path. I don't exactly know where to go. And that can kind of cause you to have some turmoil. But you know what, for us, as we come to the word of God, we can know that it's the right way to go. It says, huh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can know that that's always the right decision. That 100% of the time, that is the right way to go. That's encouraging because there's a lot of confusion in this world. There's a lot of misinformation in this world. There's all kinds of nonsense, but the scriptures tell us the right way to go. And then what does it do? Notice knowing the right way to go, it rejoices the heart. I love this. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Knowing the right way to go brings joy. It sort of does. That word rejoicing, it speaks of happiness or relief or illumination. We've all been lost out driving somewhere. Even with the wonderful GPS, we can still get lost. And the, the anxiousness and frustration. And then when you get on the right road, ah, there's relief. So when you and I just do the right thing, there's a rejoicing that happens. Yes, Okay, I'm on the right road and I know it's hard, but I have peace because this is what God's told me to do. This is where he's told me to go. Now it says the commandment of the Lord is pure. That word pure there, it means free from what's questionable. That God's commandments are pure. And then what do they do? They enlighten the eyes. Enlightening the eyes. It means it brings illumination, insight, understanding. You begin to see things clearly. It, it, it's amazing. The more that you spend time in God's word, he will reveal, you know, beautiful things to you. You'll be able to understand things better. You'll share those with other people. It'll bring light into their life. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Verse nine, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. That, that, that faith in the word of God, what does it do? It leads to a reverent fear of God. So as we study God's word and get to know God better, then we have a reverent fear of God. You know, unbelievers don't fear God. I don't think he exists, right? And so they're very flippant. And it's interesting that, you know, they say all kinds of blasphemous things about him and all that kind of stuff. But as you and I get to know God better and better and better, then what's gonna happen is it creates a reverent fear. It creates a, a holy respect for God. Now it says that this fear of the Lord is clean. That word clean there, it means free of what would separate us from God. In other words, there's nothing corruptible or corrosive. That, that whenever we're fearing God rightly, we're reverently fearing him, that what happens is it purifies our hearts. It, it, it removes those things. We get closer to God. And what happens is, is God cleanses us from those corrosive elements within our own heart and soul. And then it's also, notice it's enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. In other words, the reverent fear of the Lord is something that will always be around. It will always be around. If you read the book of Revelation, and then what you see in there is that people in heaven redeemed people reverently fear God. They bow down before him. They worship him. And actually, they're the ones who can worship him rightly because they see him the most clearly. 
It's as you and I reverently fear him, then what happens, we begin to see him more clearly, and that leads us to more reverent fear. Now, this reverent fear is not the cowering fear, you know, of uncertainty, the cowering fear of someone who's unpredictable. No, this is a right fear of a God who's holy. So it's this beautiful thing to think that we can participate in who we're becoming by reverently fearing him now. And so that it won't have to be such a big adjustment when we get to heaven. Now, continuing on, it says the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. God's judgments are always absolutely right. God's judgments are always absolutely right. He is, right, he is righteousness personified, and so he always makes the right decision, always. Now, you and I, let's be honest, we rebel against this because God allows a lot of things or does a lot of things or however we want to use it semantically, to, and, and we look at it and we say, this is horrible, and we say things like, God should not allow this to happen. God should not have allowed this strategy. God should not have allowed this politician. God should not have allowed any of these things. And what we say is, God, I'm omniscient. I know there's no way you can work this thing out for the good because I can't see the way forward. And that's just, hum- that's just pride. It's hubris. It doesn't make any sense. What the scriptures tell us The scriptures that cannot lie tell us that God's ways are always right. God's ways are always true. So the better thing for you and I, and maybe this is just me, the better thing for me to do is in every situation say, I don't know how this situation can be right, but God is right. I don't know how he's going to work this thing out. I can't see it from my own limited perspective, but I know that he always does the right thing. I know that he's always going to work it together for the good. So we'll just have to see. We'll have to see how it's going to turn out. And so God is always right. God is always just. He always does the right thing. Verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Now, what we have here is the intrinsic value of God's word, that God's word is more valuable than gold. That's what Scripture says. And Scripture says similar things over and over and over again. But the fact of the matter is, for us as believers, we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe this? Do I really believe that God's word is more valuable than gold? Most people don't believe it. You know, we're, we kind of are a little bit lonely at first service on Sunday mornings. You know, but if I said we're giving away gold today, <laughs> there'd be people murdering us to get at it. But when it comes to the word of God, like the old saying goes, I can't give it away. <laughs> Right, that, that, so that's, that's how people view it. And so we understand that from a worldly point of view, but what about us as believers? Do we actually believe that the word of God is more valuable than gold? Because gold is perishing. Gold's gonna be lost. Everything that's built in this world is gonna fade away. But what the word of God builds in us is something that's forever. It builds us into people that are gonna have eternal rewards. It builds us into people that are gonna know God and spend time with him and enjoy him forever. So that's why it's more valuable than gold. I love how it's, I'm gonna give you a couple of verses that tie into this. Psalm 119 verse 72 says this, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. And then Proverbs 16, 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Now, it's interesting because for, for you and I, we're kind of in a position and say, well, I don't know, I could use a little bit more gold here and there. But David and Solomon were guys who had a lot of gold. David and Solomon were guys who had a lot of silver. They had a lot of stuff. So they could say, I've had all the gold. I've had all the silver. I can tell you this right now. The word of God's better than it. it, it it's better than these material riches. All right, let's continue on here. So we saw after the gold, notice verse 10, sweeter than honey and sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So we, we have the intrinsic value when it says like you know, the word of God's better than gold. And now we have kind of this experienced pleasure of God's word. That, that it, there's more enjoyment from the word of God than honey and the honeycomb. And, and this is like the, the ultimate in the ancient world when it comes to, you know, you, you got a sweet tooth, you want some honey. 
And so David is saying the word of God is better than that. And so for us, you know, it, are, are we coming to the word of God and saying, hey, it, this, is, this is better than TNT donuts. You know, that I come into the word of God, Shirley, cover your ears. It's better than Shirley cinnamon rolls, right? Is this, this, that the word of God brings a sweetness to my soul that no physical thing can bring. Verse 11, moreover, by them, your servant is warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. It's beautiful that by the word of God, the book of the word, we're warned. And why is this? Why, why do you warn somebody? Because you want them to be safe. You want them to be secure. You want them not to do certain things. So you warn them. A parent warns their child, don't run in the road, not because he hates a child, because he loves a child. Because he wants to keep the child safe. And so the word of God warns us to what not to do. But then also we're told, and in keeping them, there is great reward. This is a means of an abundant outcome, a blessing, a recompense for obeying. So there's what to do. So it warns us what not to do and then gives us a reward for what to do. And we need to keep that in mind. Because sometimes we get this mentality of like, well, I just need to obey the word of God because God told me to and I'm going to hate it and I'm just going to do it. No, keeping the word of God is a great reward. It, it, it can reward us relationally. It can reward us in you know, service to him. It can reward us in any number of ways. It grow us in our you know, relationship with him, relationship with others, and all kinds of things can, can come out of it. And so for us to say there is a great reward in serving God and knowing God and obeying his word. Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. In other words, we, we all make errors. We all, you know, have shortcomings. We all have blind spots. And so we need the word of God to cleanse us from those secret faults. And it's interesting. God will do it. You ask God, say, Lord, reveal to me my sinfulness as I read your word, he'll get to work right away. He will show you right away. And so we need God's cleansing. And so we're cleansed by the spirit of God working through the word of God. As we read the word of God, God's Holy Spirit reveals things to us and cleanses us from those sins. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Now, this word keep back there means restrain me from presumptuous sins. Those are sins done in a proud and defiant way. And unfortunately, as we read this, you know, if, if David wrote this before his sin with Bathsheba, God did seek to keep him back from that sin. And I would encourage you sometime, go back and read that chapter and see all the stop signs that David blew through. See how David was not out with his army at the time it was to battle. He was hanging out at home. See how David was not occupied, but just kind of wandering around on the roof, sees a woman bathing, doesn't look away. You see David go ask about her. Somebody says to David, hey, that's Uriah's wife. And he blows through that stop sign. And you see this over and over again, that God set up a situations. So David knew he was blown through the stop signs. But you know, here's the deal about how God works. God is not going to put you in a straitjacket and throw you in a room so you don't sin. God's going to warn you. God's going to give you his spirit to show you. God's going to put people in your life to seek to restrain you, but it's not going to be physically. God's going to give us a choice at the end of the day. And so David committed those presumptuous sins. And unfortunately, notice verse 13, what happens when you give in to presumptuous sins? He says, let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins enslave us. They become our masters and we become their slaves. And what happened to David is that the sword never departed from his household after his sin with Bathsheba. There was always a problem there. And so please understand, you and I are gonna, you're gonna fall into sin. We're gonna walk into sin. We're gonna do these kind of things. But when we, there's something different. When we presumptuously go into something, when we just say, I'm gonna do this thing. I know it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it and take the consequences. We're asking to be mastered by that sin. We're asking to be enslaved once again by sin. Continuing on the last part of verse 13, he says, then I shall be blameless 
then I shall be innocent of great transgression. So this should be our prayer. Lord, keep me away from these presumptuous sins. Keep me away from these places. Let me be innocent of great rebellion and let me be blameless. It doesn't mean sinless, but it means that there's not something kind of ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life that people can, can point out. And so David is asking for that. We know that, that David went against that and his sin with Bathsheba, but, but let this be a prayer for us. Verse 14, last verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So I love that. The words of my mouth, what I say, the meditation of my heart, what I think, be acceptable in your sight, be what you want. You know, this is a prayer God wants to answer. Lord, let me say what you want, to, want me to say. Let me think what you want me to think so that I can be what you want me to be. That's beautiful. And that's the best thing possible to be. And then he says, oh, Lord, my strength. That word strength is one we've seen over and over again. It means rock, you know, this foundation. And he says, my redeemer. And I love that redeemer because it's in the Hebrew, it speaks of a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer is, is uh, the most, you know, the, the, probably the best Old Testament picture of that is Boaz and Ruth. You know, Ruth is destitute. She has nothing. And she goes to the Boaz to be her covering to be the, her provider, to be her protector, to redeem her out of the situation that she's in. And that's really the picture between us and God. We have nothing to offer God. We're, we are destitute. He didn't save us because he looked down and said, man, I, I really need somebody on my team like them. That's not what God said. God looked at us and said, those people really need some help. <laughs> they really need some help. And I'm willing to help them. I'm willing to redeem them. I'm willing to bring them onto my team. I'm willing to adopt them into my family, to bring them into my home if they'll submit to me. So there's a beautiful picture here as we kind of close of our own need for God and the whole situation. So as we close, I just want to exhort you to read two books every day. Two books every day. I encourage you to read the book of the world, to go out today and to look around to do the unthinkable and put your phone in your pocket and look around at the world God created and think about what he's done. Think about what he's revealing about himself through it. And then every day I would encourage you to, breathe, to read the book of the word. To come to the book of the word, not of like, I've got to accomplish this many chapters today and I got to get through this kind of thing today, but to say, I want to come here because I need restoration for my soul. I need to be cleansed by the word. I need to know God better through it. So every day, read two books, read the book of the world and read the book of the word.